Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is the risk trade on? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Maggie, it's great to be back. How you doing? It's great to be back. I'm doing well. And we are talking to officially a married man. Congratulations, Darius. Thank you, Maggie. Appreciate you. Uh, shout out to my beautiful wife, Allie, and her lovely family. Well, we're, we're so happy family. for you. And I... <laughs> Um, I'm sure the wedding was beautiful and everything you hoped it'd be, and I'm glad you got some time off. Um, I'm sure our our fabulously wise community probably has some great marriage tips for you. So if there's anything you want to share to Darius, bring him on in, put him in the chat. I, I heard the best one is happy wife, happy life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that's a good one to start with, for sure. Right. <laughs> so, um, boy, you, you really like pop right back into the action, didn't you? Because we had... Uh, an action-packed week, a lot of information. We had the tame inflation readings back-to-back, CPI and PPI, which really set the market off. We had bank earnings today, JP Morgan, City, uh, Citigroup, better than expected. Consumer confidence really blowing past expectations, a two-year high. When you put it all together, um, and stocks, by the way, which are a bit flat right now, but you know, stringing together a really nice-looking rally. When you put it all together, Darius, you know, how, what are you thinking about? What do you make of all this? Well, I make of all this is this was to be expected. <laughs> I mean, this is something we've been talking about on the program since almost a year. I mean, it goes back to last August uh, when you and I were discussing our resilient U.S. economy theme. You know, I'd come on the program every week and say the economy's booming. The economy's booming. The economy's booming. Now, it obviously slowed down uh, since those since that time period. Uh, but we've been very consistent since last fall. Uh, that the U.S. economy would remain resilient, at least until you get into Q4 this year and or Q4 of next year. That's when we have the recession timing. So let's unpack some of the data um, that we got today, because I think it's very important to contextualize this stuff in order to understand where we're likely headed next. So, Brian, if you throw up chart three, um, you know, where we go, uh, where we show uh, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, uh, we show the Current Conditions Index, and we show the Expectations Index, uh, and we see just on a headline basis the, uh, the, the headline ticked up by 8.2 points to 72.6. That 72.6 is the highest number we've seen since last uh, September of 2021. Mm. But more importantly, that plus 8.2 delta is the fastest month-over-month increase we've seen in this time series since December of 2005. So, I mean, this is you know pretty clear in our view what's driving this improvement and in, um, in consumer confidence and ultimately the resiliency of the consumer economy here in the U.S. is what we show on slide four. Um, right, if you throw that slide up where we show immaculate disinflation has been a contributing factor. We, at the top panel in this chart, you know, we show the expected changes in prices over the next year. The median statistic, that number ticked up very marginally, 3.4, uh, but it's down from right around five and a half, um, you, know, so, you know, about a year ago. And so that immaculate disinflation and expectations amongst consumers has really contributed to an improvement in their expected financial situation uh, over the next year, which is the chart in the bottom panel in that, in that, in that chart. And that number is up plus eight points on a month-over-month basis. Uh, that's the high, to the highest level we've seen uh, since July of 2021. So when you put everything together, we've had a considerable amount of immaculate disinflation in the economy. It's inflated consumer incomes, both on a real and expectations basis. 
And ultimately, we've been able to hang in there from the perspective of consumer spending and the, and the hanging in there from the perspective of consumer spending has really kept the labor market buoyant, which are all things that we presaged in these conversations last fall. Yeah. So I guess the, it's funny that you say the immaculate disinflation because there were so many doubters, right? I mean, when you first started talking about that, we had so, we, we really had people divided in camps and so many people just didn't believe it. They just didn't. They thought the economy was about to crater. You know, this recession timeline has been getting pushed out so much. In fact, Andreas, um, I'm going to I'm going to run this now because it's like right in line with what we're talking about. Andreas dropped the latest episode of Steno Signals, and he gives some more meat on why this recession has been so hard to pin down. Let's listen to that. and We'll talk on the other side. Let's have a look at four reasons why the recession risks proved to be overpriced and why the recession can ultimately still arrive. But ultimately, you also need to look for clues on the actual recession to actually take notice of it or, or to care about it from an asset allocation perspective. And the first reason I'd like to highlight is the relationship that we see between uh, real wage growth and labor demand. So wage growth adjusted for inflation. What we saw through 21 and 22 was a, an outright nosedive in the wage growth adjusted for inflation. And what that means is that companies set higher selling prices relative to the wage component of their cost base. So in my humble opinion, this is positive for most companies because they pay less for their workers relative to their selling prices. Uh, and interestingly, you also get that exact pattern when you study it empirically. When there's a slide in the inflation-adjusted wage growth, companies tend to hire more people, uh, which makes sense given that the price of labor has cheapened relative to their selling prices. Uh, and currently, we're seeing sort of the opposite uh, scenario slowly but surely unfolding, wages growing faster than um, selling prices. And that could turn into an issue for the labor market, say, three, four, five months down the road, um, as the price of labor gets more expensive relative to selling prices. And I actually think that is the way that you should look at real wage growth relative to labor markets. And it's completely upside down relative to what most economists will, uh, will tell you. And that full episode of Steno Signals is available on our website. If you're not already a member, you know what to do. Scan the QR code and you can hop on a trial. Um, so Darius, uh, where are we in terms of, you've been, as you said, you've been flagging this and sort of, you know, warning people that the recession talk was, or the recession calls were maybe premature. Um, where are we now? Are you worried about wage inflation? I know you have a chart that is when will immaculate disinflation conclude? I think that's where we're all wondering, are we in this sweet spot and the Fed's going to get away with this soft landing where inflation's tame and the economy's doing well? It sounds too good to be true. What are you thinking about in terms of timing? You're 100% correct in terms of identifying this as a sweet spot. We are in a perfect sweet spot of immaculate disinflation. Uh, and so the question is, is when does this sweet spot end or when is that driving force of immaculate disinflation include? And so we, uh, we posed that question on slide six, uh, Brian, if you could throw that chart up, uh, where we show uh, median CPI on a three-month annualized rate of change basis in the blue bars and the red uh, line as the year-over-year -year rate of change. Uh, we saw trim mean CPI in the second panel and, and, and super core CPI, which is core services CPI X housing uh, in the bottom panel. And what we've seen is that we, if you say, stick with the bottom panel, 
you know, that that soup, that immaculate disinflation that we've seen has really, really showed up uh, in this sort of statistic that, you know, Powell and other central bankers are watching. Uh, we've seen the blue bars um, come down from a, you know, kind of a six month moving average of around 4% to breaking down all the way to 1.4%, which again means that the three month annualized rate of change of super core CPI is now down at 1.4%. That's the lowest print we've seen since September 21. So that ultimately means that the year over year rate of change is gonna chase that lower. Uh, with similar dynamics we're observing in median CPI, top panel, trim mean CPI in the second panel as well, uh, where we have the three month annualized rate of change now down at 4.6%. That compares to a three month, uh, six month moving average of, of six. Uh, we have trim mean CPI at 3.1%. That compares to a six month moving average of 4.6. Uh, but what concerns me about you know, this immaculate disinflation that we've observed. And again, we got all these data points this week um, in the June CPI report. What concerns me about that is the stasis that we've see, we're starting to see in median CPI and trim mean CPI. And this goes to the point we've been making in recent, um, you know, recent discussions is that immaculate disinflation is immaculate for a reason, right? We don't just make these things up. And the reason we call it immaculate is because it's very atypical. In fact, it's un highly unusual to see such a breakdown in inflation ahead of an observed recession. Typically, mm -hmm. inflation is the most lagging indicator of the US business cycle, typically breaking down somewhere around two to three quarters after a recession begins. And so ultimately, we understand that this immaculate disinflation process is going to conclude, and we're going to be left with higher rates of inflation relative to trend, higher rates of wage inflation relative to trend, and ultimately, mm -hmm. we're going to need that recessionary process to get inflation back to 2%. Okay, so that is going to be disappointing to some. Oliver was asking, Darius, will my Friday night drinks cost more or less by the end of the year? Sounds like you're <laughs> saying they're probably going to get, cost a little more. Uh, well, the inflation, the disinflation in the uh, in the rate of change will slow down. I mean, that's, that's no. you know, I, and I don't want to say specifically about the alcohol, food and beverage category, but what we're seeing is we're starting to see a little bit of stasis where it matters. And, you know, in terms of these median CPI, trimming CPI time series. So uh, we're going to continue to see year over year inflation, particularly core inflation, head lower and chase these, um, the three-month annualized rates of change down. But what concerns me, looking at other indicators, you know, focusing on, for instance, the uh, ISM services or ISM manufacturing supplier delivery time surveys, those numbers are, you know, months ago, got back to levels that are more consistent with 2% inflation. You look at the um, housing uh, indicators, we have a resurgence in housing inflation, uh, citing the fifth uh, um, home price uh, index. Uh, it's now up 9% on a three-month annualized basis. Um, you know, you go back to the lag, you interpolate the lags from the current cycle, and we, we might see a, a soft rise in housing inflation over the next couple of quarters, because that's what it did roughly 18 months ago when, you know, kind of interpolating that lag back to the time series. So, you know, there's some things that could have you concerned as an investor about this today, this today being the crescendo of mm -hmm. the soft landing, the, you know, the peak in the soft landing expectations, the peak in immaculate disinflation expectations. And it could be the case that from here, Soft landing starts to decay, immaculate disinflation starts to decay, and both of those get replaced by something called a recession and sticky inflation. So that's where I suspect we'll be in a few months' time. Uh, but between now and then, and you know, just like in any other um, any other period in mismanaging financial markets, you just have to lean on your technical indicators. Yeah. So I, I want to touch on a couple other things as we're talking about the turn. So you're looking at you're looking at you know changes maybe in the, the best news of the inflation being you know the falling inflation maybe having peaked uh you you also i think point out some really interesting factors that are contributing to our resilient economy because a lot of people are scratching their heads and we often talk about 
you know, maybe it's the haves and have nots, right? We know that some people who are living paycheck to paycheck or toward the, you know, the bottom of the economy, uh, the income, um, uh, you know, stacking order, right, are, are struggling a little, bit, a little bit. And maybe those who are wealthy have more. But you have some other things on here that are really interesting. Walk us through some of these. I'm especially interested in seeing limited credit cycle vulnerabilities. I thought that that big rate reset was going to really hurt um, you know, when it came to credit, we haven't really seen that. Walk us through some of these. Yeah, well, so <laughs> I'll start. There's a few things you said that are worth unpacking. Uh, I'll start by saying, as someone who grew up very poor in and out of homeless shelters, we are always struggling. <laughs> yeah, poor people are that always is the struggling. Truth. Right, yeah, no matter what's so. happening, there's a part of the economy that is always struggling. Exactly. You're absolutely so, right. yeah, taking the Twitter and and just suddenly concerning yourself about poor people is not how you do financial market research. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me let me make that point very clear. Uh, but putting up this um this slide five uh, in our in our in, in this it's slide five in today's um uh, chart pack, you know we we list these uh, sort of key factors that are contributing to our resilient U.S. economy theme, and many of these factors, by the way, were ever present when we created the theme almost a year ago. Um, so the you just run down the list. We have near record cash on household balance sheets. We're right around four point five trillion dollars in checkable deposits. That number is up from around one trillion prior to the pandemic. So this concept of excess savings and dwindling down and lower income consumers running out of excess savings is all Wall Street nonsense. Just slap it down, move it mm -hmm. on. It's Wall Street nonsense. You heard it here, folks. Near record cash on corporate balance sheets are right around just side of $2 trillion. Um, as a share of uh, both of those um, uh, uh, cohorts, total assets, household and corporate sector, the, the, that $2 trillion for the corporate sector, that $4.5 trillion for the household sector is right around 3% of both of those cohorts, total assets. You got to go all the way back to the mid to late 1960s to see a ratio of, of cash on corporate, on corporate and household balance sheets this high, which means both businesses and consumers still feel rich. They're flush mm -hmm. with cash as a share of their total assets. Um, another factor is that private sector income and wealth have outpaced inflation on a structural basis. Um, you look at, you know, again, those statistics themselves, you add money market fund exposure into that, you add household net worth into that, you add nominal employee compensation into that, you add gross domestic income into that, looking at the business sector, and all of those factors have outpaced the growth of inflation since the start of 20, since the start of 2020. And so on a structural basis, you know, inflation is going to catch up, but it's just going to require time to catch up and make those things negative on a real basis. Um, we also have limited credit cycle vulnerabilities. You know, one thing that, you know, I've learned from studying business cycles for, you know, 15 years is that you tend to need to see, in order to have a recession, you tend to need to see uh, two factors. One, capital misallocation and financial tightening. We've had financial tightening and we're going to continue to get financial tightening as it rolls its way through the system on a lag. There's long and variable lags in monetary policy based on the term of debt and, you know, duration, et cetera, all that stuff. But what we have not seen in this business cycle is a growth rate of credit that would be commensurate with capital misallocation. Everyone keeps talking about credit card debt this, credit card debt this, again, terrible statistics. Credit card debt as a share of nominal disposable personal income has not budged since 2015. It's literally been like a flat line dead person heartbeat since 2015. So um, you, know, you gotta do the statistics correctly if you wanna understand these things and ultimately make money with this information. And so we've got a couple more things. We have very limited exposure to the volatile manufacturing sector in the US economy. Um, the manufacturing sector accounts for 14% of, of total non-farm payrolls. That's down from like 45% in the 1940s. Uh, the G, um, it accounts for 18% of GDP. Uh, it's, we only get no statistics since 2005, but it's obviously on a secular low. And the reason I bring that up is because when you look at recessions, 
The, the sector of the economy that accounts for most of the job loss in recessions is the manufacturing sector at around 98% of net non-farm payroll job loss. And so you got to do a lot more damage to a tiny part of the economy in order to really create a recession. And the problem with the creating that and doing even doing that is that one large chunk of the manufacturing sector is the housing sector. And we have this boom in new home sales because we have this record spread between the marginal mortgage rate and the effective mortgage rate. So it's like, how are we even going to do that, right? And then a couple final things, I'll be quick. Labor hoarding, uh, we obviously see the labor force as, as uh, low relative to the trend. And so gross domestic income is high relative to its, its pre-COVID trend. And so as a function of that, you're obviously seeing companies being very unwilling to let go of, of, of talent you know, mm -hmm. early in the business cycle downturn. And then finally, which is arguably the most underappreciated factor on this entire page, which is Bidenomics. We have a president that thinks it's a good idea to spend money to take inflation down. <laughs> yeah, He said it a year ago, we laughed at it, and now a year later, he's doing it. We have a record non-war, non-pandemic, non-anything fiscal budget deficit. Like we've had deeper budget deficits, obviously, but during recessions, but not outside of recession. We've never seen an 8% uh, budget deficit to GDP here in the U.S. economy. So that's obviously contributing to the resiliency of the economy and ultimately what we think by, you know, a quarter or two from now may contribute to uh, the resiliency of U.S. inflation prior to you know, the recessionary process that it needs to get back to 2%. Yeah, interesting. And we, we are going to talk a lot more about that. You're right. It doesn't come up as much. We're going to talk a lot more about that, you know, as we turn the corner, I think, into the fall. Um, it's on our radar, certainly. But I'm, I'm really glad. And this I'm so glad you put this list down because I think sometimes people scratch their heads and, and as you say, rely on sort of information that's floating out there or a line you hear someone say or I think we all sort of have financial insecurity. So we're like, wait a minute, things don't feel that good, but this is a really comprehensive list. So my question is, do these factors mean that even if we go into recession, it's not a severe one? Yeah, it's highly likely to not be severe. I'm not, so let me answer that question two ways. From an economic standpoint, it's unlikely to be severe because again, mm. we're talking about you know labor hoarding that may be persistent even in a recession. Mm. You know, it may just be harder to get rid of um, headcount because again, ultimately companies know that in the next expansion, if they fire too many people now, they may not be able to replace those people when they actually need to grow again. You know, right. So that's an issue. Um, so it's that's one thing that can contribute to this. But going back to the um, um, you know, limited credit cycle vulnerabilities, one thing that we found is there's a pretty sharp statistical relationship between what we call the private non-financial sector credit gap. Now, that's a very wonky academic jargon for you know the deviation from trend in, the, in, the, in credit to GDP ratio for the private sector. And our deviation from trend is actually negative in the sense that we have not levered up and certainly have not levered up at a, at a quick enough pace to suggest there's any capital misallocation in the economy. And what- yeah. the, So that's, that, a, that's saying pretty, the, 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 the corporations are in pretty good shape. They're not overextended with credit. Yeah. They're not, they've got a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So it's a pretty healthy corporate sector, which should help insulate well, when we hit reason, some trouble. The reason that matters is because that the, the health, that health you decided is inversely correlated to the depth of the recession. Both yeah. in terms of the drawdown in GDP, both in, and also in terms of the drawdown in non-farm payrolls, and so we have like one of the shallowest credit gaps ever, you know, ahead of a recession in the U.S. economy. Now the data you know, comes out in a lag from the BIS; it's going to get worse, but it may not get worse enough to suggest that we're going to have anything other than a mild recession. Now that's the first half of my answer to your question, Maggie. Mm -hmm. Second half of my answer to your question, Maggie, is I don't think the market's going to care about how mild the recession is when it starts, and the reason I say that is because typically what ca causes the market cycle to inflect in a recession is the response in, in, in policy. 
obviously the Fed was very in, ineffective in 2001 and ineffective in 2008 in terms of its pivots. But generally speaking, by and large, the mark, bear markets tend to bottom right around one month ahead of the inflection in the, or sorry, one month after the inflection in the liquidity cycle. I've done a tremendous amount of work on this, probably as much work on this as anyone in the world. And I will challenge anyone to put their work against ours on this. And so what we tend to see is that the Fed tends to cause bear markets to inflect. And the mm -hmm. reason I bring that up as a, as a negative value is because the Fed is implicitly forecasting a recession if you look at the implied deltas on their summary in the summary of economic projections on unemployment, on core PCE, they're telling you higher for longer. They say mm -hmm. it every, day, every week. And so the my fear is heading in when we get into that phase two credit cycle downturn process, which you know may be you know, a few months away or a couple of quarters away. So that's kind of our modal outcome expectation. When we get into that process, it's very likely that the Fed is going to be sitting on its hands and not supplying the market with liquidity in a panicked fashion like it did in COVID, you know, like it did in previous cycles. And that concerns me from the perspective of how much the market needs to go down to get the Fed off its high horse. Yeah. Okay. So that's super interesting. And we started this by saying, is it is the risk on trade or is the risk trade back on? Because some people are feeling like that. You know, they're seeing what's happening in stocks. They saw that inflation come down and they're but it sounds like you're a little skeptical. And let me ask Saul has a, I think the same question. Uh he says, big fan, great talk on macro voices. I might be late to the party, but does the market narrative need to shift from higher rates equals recession, more likely to strong growth productivity equals S SPY to the moon before prices are affected by the credit cycle downturn? Yes, probably. Yes. And that's exactly what we tend to see. Um, so markets, by the way, markets are always very strong in the year leading up to recession. This is something we've done work on a few couple of quarters ago, maybe. Uh, whenever we put it out. But the, the, the reason I brought this up, oh no, sorry, about a quarter ago. Um, the reason I brought this up is because, you know, we the, the markets not only are very strong in the year leading up to a recession, on, on a median basis, the return of the S&P 500 is plus 16% with an interquartile range of plus 14 to plus 20. But that's obviously the fear is if you're a bear or someone who's not participated is you don't want to capitulate at the end of that process. What if today is the the, the high, right? So the, you know, if you, what we also done a bunch of work on is try to help investors understand, okay, you know, when does the market tend to peak ahead of the recession? And on balance, it's about a month ahead of the trough in unemployment and also a month ahead of the breakout in jobless claims. So obviously, if you're watching jobless claims like a hawk and we have a bunch of statistics on what to wa actually watch within the report uh, from a rate of change perspective to give you an indication of, um, of, of whether or not it's a recession, but that's neither here nor there. If you understand that the market tends to peak right around a month ahead of the big, you know, big breakout in jobless claims, then you understand that we probably have some time to price in more right tail risk between now and let's call it Q4 of this year or Q1 of next or of next year is when we think the recession process might commence. Let's just use, I mean, I'm totally making this up, so be aware. Mm -hmm. So let's just say the recession starts on December 31st. That tells you the market probably should peak sometime in November. The market's, the recession starts on March 31st. The market should peak sometime in January or February. And so again, that that's, that's the, I want investors to understand kind of the key takeaway from that analysis. And one final thing, it's a key takeaway from that analysis is you tend to see that squeeze. So what happens, the reason markets are so strong leading up to recession is because everybody on Twitter or whatever the version of Twitter was in previous business cycles, whether it was the, the news wire or the water hole <laughs> or the, I don't know, the golf course was probably it, you know, it's whatever that was. When it, people would get together and they'd all figure out that the cycle was slowing, but they didn't realize that there's this thing called time and respect mm. in the x-axis from the time you recognize the cycle slowing to the time that the market is done, you know, pricing in the latter stage of the business cycle. 
So this, so timing this recession is really important then. Timing when it's, it's starting to roll is gonna be critical, right? It's the only thing that matters in financial markets is time. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's only it's a big, it's, it's, what happens. I'm it's taking a deep breath in because it, that is the damn truth, isn't it? So we're pro the problem is everyone's having a hard time with this because they've been moving out. They've been expecting it. It hasn't happened. They've moved it out and they're missing this rally because they've been sitting on the sideline looking for an opportunity to get in. Sandeep asking, what are your thoughts on global liquidity and U.S. liquidity? How does liquidity fit into this when you're trying to figure out the timing and when when the market is going to roll over here? Great question. Let me answer, let me answer uh, the first question from Saul uh, real quick because you, uh, you mentioned yeah. something I, I think is important to bring up. If you're underinvested, under we have this theme called patience and popcorn, which means patience if you are a bear. Don't don't run out trying to short because we know the market's going to squeeze you know well into to the you know doorstep of recession. Popcorn is if you're underinvested, don't get fully max allocated and fully invested at this particular point in the cycle. Obviously, you need to have some exposure. You know we're not advocating for obviously obviously with this research view we're not advocating people not participate, but don't be fully invested or getting fully invested because we understand that this is probably going to conclude at some time. So that's what we mean by patience and popcorn. Mm. You wanna be getting fully invested at the lows of a market cycle, not you know three or four months ahead of the peak of the market cycle. And that's what we've been trying to communicate. We, we, I think we've done an effective job of communicating that to our clients. Uh, sorry, you asked a question. Global on liquidity, Sandeep asking, what are your thoughts on global liquidity and US liquidity? Uh, let's just put up slide two. Uh, we have our global liquidity cycle monitor. We update this in every piece of research that we uh, publish at 42 Macro. So, uh, you can kind of um, kind of under that um, the under the word MON in monitor, you see our liquidity proxy. So for the global economy, Chinese economy, US, Eurozone, Japan, UK, India, Switzerland, Brazil, these are all the countries that make up that feed into our global liquidity proxy. Um, and so what that is, the, the 42 macro global liquidity proxy is the sum of these central bank balance sheets, the sum of their broad money supply, and the sum of their FX reserves minus gold. And as what you can see is that we're currently trending lower on a global basis. We're trending lower in China, although we do expect Chinese um, liquidity, it has inflected, it's going, to, it's going to inflect into a positive trend in subsequent months. So we're actually quite bullish on the Chinese liquidity cycle and, and obviously the related you know, implications of that. US liquidity is gonna continue trending lower. Eurozone liquidity is gonna continue trending lower. Japanese liquidity is a total wild card. Um, you know, part of it's the defense of the yen. Uh, we don't think yield curve control is a really big deal at this point in time because we're not seeing it, the move in the Japanese late wage cycle as much as we've seen it in the inflation cycle. And then the rest of the economies, UK, India, Switzerland, Brazil, their liquidity is all rising. And so, you know, you think about where global liquidity could be three or four months from now, you have basically the whole world fighting against the US and Eurozone. Mm. And so really what it comes down to is how much liquidity can the Chinese supply at this particular juncture? Go back to Q4 of last year, Q1 of this year, China and Japan combined to throw about nine, $10 trillion into this global liquidity impulse um, that was obviously very uh, um, you know, uh, beneficial for getting risk assets off the lows and really creating a lot of the positive outcomes that we're seeing on the tape this year. We're not gonna see that same level of thrust because we're probably not gonna see it from Japan uh, as well, but we are gonna see it from China. So it's to me, it's I think the call on global liquidity, it's probably flat to down Mm. You know, based on all the everything we see um, coming out of the pike from um, all these different central banks and all these different economies, based on their growth and inflation deltas. That's interesting. So it sounds like you're not getting in the way of this equity rally, and it's certainly or risk asset rally, and it certainly could continue. 
but I think you sound more concerned about what happens when we turn into the last quarter of the year. No, I would say, I would uh, uh, honestly, I would just rephrase that. I sound like someone who's done enough research to understand how the sequence of the events should play out. We okay. understand that we are in a pre-recession bull market that's consistent with dozens or, or you know decades and decades of U.S. economic um, and market research or history. But we also understand that that pre-recession bull market is going to conclude at some point and turn into what we call a phase two credit cycle downturn. And mm -hmm. so my best, not guess, is you know obviously we do hundreds of pages of research every yeah. month. <laughs> so <Forecast>. my best <laughs> forecast of when the market is likely to peak is sometime in Q4 or Q1. Ah, have a crystal okay. ball on that, but it's July 14th here. Now the market's going to pull back. This is a stupid day to be buying stocks here. We're overbought. You know, the measures of complacency are, are you know, we got our friends at the Longbow that they're the doomsday doesn't signal. It's at a max complacency level. This is a terrible day to capitulate if you're a bear. Mm. But the reality is, you probably, if you're if you're running net short, you're probably going to want to use some weakness here to actually cover some shorts and wait. To um to actually short you know maybe a few months from now mm -hmm. I think you know this market is this is not a new fresh bull market a new fresh bull um you know start of the economic business cycle we still have a lot more of these mundane business cycle processes to go through it's just going to take time and we need to understand where we are in that process so again don't fight the tape I think a lot of investors learned that lesson the hard way this year um, we were fortunate to have pivoted back in, in mid January when we did. Um, you know, would have you know, it, it, it's just it's just about being humble and respecting the fact that the business cycle is a process, the market cycle is a process, and it has nothing to do with the hot retweet on Twitter today. Yeah, that that is so true. Um, fantastic stuff. Uh, we're going to echo Jeff's sentiments, um, who said, "You're a legend. Love your viewpoint and analysis. Thank you for all your work and sharing with this community." And we feel the same way, Darius. I got to say, we did get some. We did get some. Uh, some marriage advice for the newlywed from David uh, for Darius, but he says, Benjamin Franklin said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. Now that's just not funny <laughs> advice to newlyweds, but truly whip smart. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to take it. Uh, me neither, uh, Darius. I was going to say the same thing and, I, and I'm not sure I concur, but um, it's hilarious and I love it. Um, thank you so much. Congrats again, Darius. Just thrilled for you both. Appreciate you so much, and and I'll give everyone else some some marriage advice. And this is advice from from life. Um, you know, we went through um, uh, with my my youth pastor actually prior to our, our our marriage, we went through like this sort of like pre wedding counseling or workshop basically. Yeah, we call it pre cana, but yeah, we all have some version of that. I think <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah, so I did that with my my youth pastor actually. Uh, I was grateful that he did that with us. And one of the things I learned in that, and I think it really resonated with me because I think it's kind of how I knew to treat people, mm -hmm. but it, it, I'll, it, I'll never forget it. It was like, there's a verse in Corinthians, uh, Bible verse, where it's like, do everything out of love. Yeah. If you do everything out of love, the whole world just makes sense. And, and the universe will, will take care of itself. You know, not everyone on Twitter is going to be nice to you. Not everyone's going to hold the door for you. But if you yourself control your own actions and do everything out of love, the world will be a better place. That's a beautiful sentiment to send us off for the weekend. And I feel like so many people that cross through our Real Vision community do just that. And we're so grateful for it. Appreciate Thanks, Darius. Enjoy. Enjoy your weekend, everyone. We'll be back on Monday. I've got to step out again to take my daughter on a college visit. But Ash is going to be in the seat Monday through Wednesday. So he'll see you then. Take care, everybody. Good luck out there. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN.